According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me one more time, if you would, in Proverbs 14. We've uh, essentially completed the chapter, um, but we want to tie together some final details before we move into uh, chapter 15. I'm, I'm anxious for chapter 15. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, one of my favorite proverbs everywhere. You have all 31 chapters of all, however many total proverbs there are in this book. Um, this one's huge. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And uh, if we learn how to do this uh, biblically and effectively and powerfully, um, we will benefit our church and our marriages and our families, and the workplace and everything else. And so we're going to start that next week and I'm looking forward to that. But for today though, uh, I do want to wrap together some of the political discussions and the things that come up in verses 34 and 35 and uh, understand what it is that we do as Christians in praying for our leaders and praying for government and praying for our nation and uh, the ways that God blesses a nation when He blesses a nation under biblical principles. And so that's how chapter 14 concludes. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. And this too speaks of character, and it speaks of biblical norms and standards in a population that either conducts their lives uh, on the biblical model or conducts their lives on the worldly model. And uh, this is how this is how it goes. So we'll uh, look at the examples on this and uh, the slide that we had briefly up there at the end of last week, and uh, work our way through some of those scriptures and see all the places because it's not just the Jewish nation; it's Gentile nations as well, in which righteousness exalts a nation, not just the Jewish nation. And so we want to be clear on this today. All right, before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, thankful Father for your faithfulness. Uh, day after day, month after month, year after year. Father, you are faithful. From generation to generation, you are faithful. And so we give you the praise and the glory this morning. We call upon your faithfulness this hour to open the eyes of our understanding, to show us from your word the standards of righteousness in which a nation can be exalted. And make clear to us, Father, what our role is in uh, praying for our government, in supporting uh, those in positions of authority. How is it that uh, we should operate, Father, and uh, make these things clear? I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in the slideshow then, um, we had points 21 and 22 that wrapped up the last uh, issues here in this chapter. From verse 33, wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding, but in the heart of fools it is made, no made known. There's a contrast. Not only do we rest in faith, but actually faith rests in us. Wisdom rests in us. It's a great verse for faith rest. Uh, we want to make sure that our soul is a place for God's wisdom to be comfortable. You know, uh, you ever, you know, uh, as you host somebody or you want them to be comfortable, 
uh, in your home. You want them to be comfortable in your church. You want to welcome them. You don't want the doors locked where they can't get in. You want them to, to feel like they're welcome and we're happy to have you here and please, you know, sit anywhere you'd like and be comfortable. Well, we want God's wisdom to feel at home, right? Because if you're ever somewhere and you don't feel at home, well then you just want to leave. You want to get out of there and not come back. All right, and, and so that's not what you want for God's wisdom. You want w- wisdom to rest in the heart, a place where they can just be so comfortable they just, you know, take off their shoes and fall asleep. What a great, <laughs> you know, you really know you're comfortable at that point. And uh, so we want to have a heart that is so prepared that the Word of Christ can richly dwell within us, that it feels at home, that it feels comfortable, because it is indeed a two-way street. We're living in the Word and the Word is living in us. And it is, in fact, a, uh, a two-way street. And uh, as far as that goes. And then the second part, the heart of fools, it is made known. And so uh, it exposes the folly of fools for what it is. All right. And then we get into the political aspect in verses 34 and 35. Righteousness exalts a nation. Not limited to Israel. It doesn't say righteousness exalts the Jewish people. It doesn't say that the Jews in the land of Israel as the covenant nation, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they're the only nation in the world that can be or can have righteousness. Not limited to the Jews at all. It says exalts a nation, any nation, any people. Sin is a disgrace to any people. Okay? And so we recognize that, that there's a, a value in that, in understanding these things. And so when you, when you examine the, the poetry, when you break it down, when you notice that these things are put in parallelism, then we have to do the appropriate studies if, if you're led to do that kind of a thing. What's the difference between a nation and a people? They're used here as a contrast, but they're also used here in a parallel. And so we want to understand, sometimes they're used interchangeably, sometimes they're not used interchangeably. Not every people have a nation, all right? Some are people that are living in a nation in which they are aliens and strangers, in which maybe they're living in a nation in which they would rather not live in that nation. But uh, maybe they're a conquered people that no longer have a nation as, as a, a political structure in that respect. So we would ask ourselves in different things. So the, the, the Comanche, for example, uh, do they still have a nation? Do they have sovereignty over land Or are they a people that still identify ethnically? They identify as a people, uh, but they no longer have a nation, see? And so there are distinctions there with respect to that. And uh, Hebrew vocabulary and Greek vocabulary in the Old Testament and the New Testament that uh, that speak to that, all right? And so we want to, all of this goes into studies that you do when you understand that God has organized the human race with uh, first of all with individuals individual, the, the laws of divine establishment start with volition personal volition every individual human being has moral choices to make and we're accountable to God for the choices we make and then you put two human beings together and those two human beings they each have volition you notice <laughs> the two become one, the two are made one flesh but they still have two sin natures they still have two volitions and they learn that if they're going to make this marriage work, that somehow um, volition has to factor in the other person's volition. And so you start to learn to defer your volition. You start to learn what happens for two to be made one. All right, And so that's the divine institution of marriage. And then beyond the divine institution of marriage is the divine institution of family. 
because the two have been made one and then babies start coming. All right? And so now we have family. And all of these divine institutions, there's, there's uh, authority structure, there's uh, expectations from God, there's accountability in serving the Lord. All right? Because the helpmate is there to help the husband and together they, they image God and they do the, the work assignment there of creation. And they have to raise up the next generation. They have to train up the children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord so that they're going to be ready in their day to leave father and mother, to cleave to one another and carry that process forward. All right. Then ultimately what starts to happen when those families start to multiply and grow? And then you get that in the, in the book of Genesis and you get that after the flood. You start to get that, well, before the flood, but then after the flood with a kind of a do-over, okay? The, the people are going forth, the families are going forth, and now the families are starting to grow to the point that they're becoming clans, they're becoming tribes, and they're becoming nations. And this is what happens. And, and really, the Tower of Babel is when God locked it into place because then He scattered the peoples and He gave them their languages. And this is then the structure that we've had ever since. Okay, And this is the structure for temporal life. This is called the laws of divine establishment for temporal life living. And it has nothing to do with whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you're saved or you're not saved. If you are human, this is God's design. That is volition, marriage, family, nations. Okay, God's design for humanity and even unbelievers. Unbelievers can have a blessed marriage if they have integrity towards one another and they're faithful to one another and they raise their children. An unbeliever can have a blessed marriage under the laws of divine establishment. A Gentile nation can have a blessed nation if they follow principles. So if they punish murderers, they punish thieves, they, they promote morals that are biblically based, there will be temporal blessings in their nation on that basis. Different aspects there. Alright, so in all of these things now, I think it's useful for us to understand when God's dealing with nations, that's one realm, He deals with those nations, but He keeps these other realms separate. Okay? And nowhere, for example, does a nation have the authority from God to tell you how to raise your children, to tell you how to, uh, to get involved in your marriage, all right, or to tell you what to think. Your volition, your individuality, your personal identity as a human is your volition before God. See, So all these realms are distinct and, uh, and that's, that's important. I think it's vital and God in His wisdom designed it this way particularly when the clans become tribes because the problem is, is without the Word of God and without God's wisdom clans and tribes are the most warring things this world has ever seen. Tribes will start hating each other. Clans will start hating each other within tribes, all right? And then families within cl- uh, clans will have start to have issues as well. So um, the, the the blessing is now of all these different realms of, of authority. It's not marriages that get uh, boundaries and countries and armies, okay, and languages, all right. Families will share language, borders, customs. They will share those with other families, with other clans, within a tribe, and then ultimately within a nation. That's where the sword. He's given the sword to the nation. It's Caesar that bears the sword. 
It's government that bears the sword. Okay? So parents can discipline children and husbands can shepherd their wives and that may include authority and and discipline of a sort. Okay? (laughs) That's a totally different news story. Um, But government does not tell the parents how to raise the children or tell the husbands how to husband their wives or tell their wives how to wife their husbands. Okay? These realms are separate. And so it's the nation, it's, it's government then that enforces the borders and enforces the law that carries the sword. And we're talking about language, peoples, languages, and uh, nations. That's what we're dealing with. All right. So we started this. Uh, Israel is not the only nation in which righteousness can exalt it. Uh, we started with the Philistines in, in Genesis chapter 20, and there's other examples as well. So let's turn to Genesis 20 and um, remind ourselves. Sometimes it's in a place you don't expect it. Especially if you're very um, myopic, <laughs> if you're locked in on self. And I don't blame Abraham in the sense that he is the called one. He was called forth. He left Ur of the Chaldees. He's, he's not a rookie. Abraham's been around. He knows what the Chaldeans were about. He knows what Ur was like. He knows what Haran was like. He knows what the Canaanites were like. He's been to Egypt. He's, 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 a, he's a world traveler. He's also um, led armies. He has uh, uh, forces that went and, and after the capture of Sodom uh, he rescued Lot from, uh, from Keterleomer and the five armies that invaded and and uh, Abraham is tremendously accomplished. Abraham is very wealthy. He has done a lot of commerce internationally. So he's seen a lot. He knows a lot of Gentiles. Okay? And this is, this is still early. I mean, the, the Jews are barely existing at this point. Remember, to be a Jew, you've got to be the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right? And right now, um, there's no Isaac yet. <laughs> okay? So... As far as the Jews are concerned, there's, uh, there's Abraham and Sarah, right? And uh, so in chapter 20 of Genesis, Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and he settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Okay. Now the saddest thing is, is this is the second time they've done this. This is the second time they've done this. Back in chapter 12 they did this, they did this before. They did this in Egypt. All right. So hold your finger here. Let's look back at chapter 12. And um, the Abrahamic covenant is given in, in verses 1 through 3. And uh, great things are happening. Um, Let's see, they come towards the Negev, that's the land, the desert land of the south, the south country. And uh, there was a famine in the land, Genesis 12, 10. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And, and it's usually commented upon that he never prayed about it, never asked the Lord, what should I do? He just sees a problem and comes up with his own solution. Okay. Men tend to do that, all right? And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai his wife, see now, to Sarai, not Sarah, the name change happens in between chapter 12 and chapter 20. In any event, 
He said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. In other words, we're, we're in trouble. They're just going to murder you and, t- and murder me and take you, and you'll end up the you know, concubine or sex slave of some powerful Egyptian. But, lie with me here, tell, you know, tell these lies with me, and uh, well, we're going to tell them that you're my sister. And so it's going to go well with me because of you. I may live on account of you. And uh, we can wheel and deal and bargain for your bride price is what we can do. And then uh, we'll get the best money we can for your bride price. And then uh, we'll abscond with those funds and, and, you know, run off, you know, do the, you know, the dine and dash thing where you just eat all you can and then run out the door without paying the bill. Um. So that's the plan. That's the plot, okay? That I may live on account of you. Now nothing in verse 13 tells us what Sarah thought about the whole idea. Okay? There's not a hint. Now I could take a survey in the room today. There's got several women here this morning and you know, what do you think? You know, your, your husband, the knucklehead, comes up with this scheme. Um, commentary though comes in Second Peter. 2 Peter 3, we're told that Sarah walked by faith and called him Lord. Okay? And that's, uh, that's remarkable. So it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. I mean, yeah, Abraham is a prophet after all. He knows this is going to happen. Pharaoh's official saw her, praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now here's the problem. This is when the plans of our carnality fall through. This is when, um, this is when uh, all of our plots and all of our schemes, uh, oh, didn't think of that. Uh-oh. So where's the wheeling and the dealing? Where's the name your prize? Where's the, let's, uh, let's uh, you know, where's the skip town before anything too scary happens? All that plan is gone out the window because he's not just dealing with an Egyptian nobleman. He's not just dealing with an Egyptian uh, soldier, an Egyptian uh, business person. This is Pharaoh. He's the god of this land. What he says goes. And he doesn't bargain and dicker over a price or, you know, they have uh, negotiations and some kind of, uh, you know, when you, when you argue uh, over uh, bartering, when you're, well, not bartering, what, what's the term I'm thinking of? What's it called? Bartering. Now there's another term. You're, you're bargaining over a price. Anyway, they love doing that in the Arab world. And um, anyway, Pharaoh just takes what he wants. And then if he wants, he'll, after the fact, give you the money he wants to give you. And you can't complain that it's not enough because this, this is Pharaoh. So whatever he wants to give you, um, just be happy with it. So he treated Abraham well for her sake. Gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Okay, so at least Pharaoh's not going to be cheap. Okay, and maybe Abraham thought that he could negotiate a better price or maybe not, maybe whatever, but even if this is kind of a lowball offer, it's not going to be terribly low because Pharaoh has his own image to uphold. And he's going to have to demonstrate to his fellow Egyptian noblemen that, that uh, he's not a complete cheapskate. 
All right. And so now Abraham gets all kinds of money. Remember, this is wealth. Sheep, oxen, donkeys, male and female servants. By the way, this would include Hagar. This is the introduction of Hagar. Okay? And so that whole Hagar thing is just compound discipline too on top of more disobedience. All right. (laughs) Male and female servants. But now the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done? And why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And um, basically kicked out of the country at this point. Uh, commanded his men concerning him, they escorted him away and with his wife and all that belonged to him. And so he got to keep the, got to keep the wealth. Okay, and this is this is just grace. This is God's grace because uh, this this episode is is tragic. This episode is just sad as anything, and it's more sad than we think. Now, so let's turn to chapter twenty and let's read, and we're going to learn some things in chapter twenty that were not stated in chapter twelve. And why were they not stated in chapter twelve? I think they were not stated in chapter twelve because they didn't happen in chapter twelve. Um, but in chapter 20 they did happen, they, they are stated, and you'll see what I'm talking about here in chapter 20. So here's the big difference. Now what happens in between? Well, a lot of things happen in between, uh, including Sodom and Gomorrah, including uh, the destruction of Lot, I mean the, the capture of Lot, and then Abraham leads the army to bring him back. Abraham, because he has this tremendous wealth from Egypt, is now a a player on the international stage and he leads his forces against these five armies. He defeats Keterleomer, he brings back the king of Sodom and, and all these things. He has a parley with Melchizedek, that's a, a, an amazing chapter. There's a lot that happens in chapters 13 through 19. And he gets renamed Abraham. All right, Sarai gets renamed Sarah. They have a separation from Lot, they have the restatement of the Abrahamic covenant. They have the famous Genesis 15, 6, where Abram believes God, it's reckoned to him as righteousness. And in chapter 17, not only do they get renamed, but they get circumcised. Abraham gets circumcised. Um, they also have um, the birth of, of Ishmael, uh, the incident with Hagar, all that sadness that happens in between. Um, even Ishmael gets circumcised. Okay, But Isaac's not born yet, that's important. That's important. How many? I mean, we're talking years that have gone by here now. And sometimes I think our divine discipline um, costs us a number of years, and we pay a price for a number of years based upon things that we didn't do well in earlier years. Okay. So, chapter twenty. Now, Abraham journeyed from there towards the land of Negev. Settled between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. He's not going to go so far as Egypt this time. He's going to stop short of Egypt in the land of Gerar. And this is where the Philistines are located. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Here we go again. Okay, but it's not Egypt, it's uh, Philistines. And if you have a different victim, you can tell the same lie over again. Okay? <laughs> and again, what does Sarah say? Come on, knucklehead, this didn't work too well last time. Right? No? 
No verbal response. All we have is the commentary from Second Peter that she called him Lord. And she submitted. Now, God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night. Now this is a little bit different. We don't know that how the details happened with Pharaoh other than that they were cursed and their wombs were closed. But here, God came to Abimelech in a dream by the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. Notice. This, this is a level of detail we're not given in chapter 12. Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, and he knows the, who the Lord is. Will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. See, she replicated the lie from her own lips. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know. In the integrity of your heart, you have done this. I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay? Isn't that beautiful? All right, now, that's there. And this is God's grace in action. This is God who's overruling Abraham's poor decision. He's overruling this whole circumstance. He's protecting Sarah. He's protecting Abimelech. He's protecting the Philistine nation. God overruled. He says, I kept you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. And I don't know how. I have a suspicion. I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> okay. And I think this is grace in action. This is totally grace in action. God is so merciful here. I think God uh, triggered um, a menstrual thing and, and um, kept, uh, kept her hands off or kept him hands off and said, okay, uh, you got, you know, you got to wait a week and uh, here you go. Okay. And then this kind of puts together some scriptures, by the way, I'm not just making this stuff up. Um, there's another verse that talks about the deadness of Sarah's womb when she was laughing about having a baby. Talking about the deadness of Sarah's womb. I think she was postmenopausal for years. I don't think she had a menstrual cycle for years. Okay. But something, God did something here to first of all bring about the miracle that would be the birth of Isaac. But then secondly, to create circumstances in which Abimelech doesn't touch her on the first night that he brings her into his palace. Okay? There's also another grace in action that comes up in the life of David when he brings Bathsheba into his palace. He brings her from the bath to his house and there's another delay. Okay? There's another delay. And again, it's a it's a the time of women thing. And God in His grace is giving David a week to get in fellowship and repent and not do what he's about to do. And uh, also gives Bathsheba time to call for her father and her grandfather to, uh, to get her out of there. And she doesn't. Okay. So anyway, that's, that's a whole different story. So um, in the end, God said, I did not let you touch her. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants. Now this is going to become a big public thing. <laughs> okay? 
told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Okay? You can imagine, this is, you know, the, the morning after your wedding night, the morning after your honeymoon, you know, <laughs> and you just call a complete, you know, staff meeting. Your entire presidential cabinet is brought into the <laughs> brought into the bridal chamber. And he says, look, I didn't touch her. God kept me from touching her. She's another man's wife. This is, we're under a curse. And, and even when you pick at the end of the chapter, verse 18, the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The whole household was just put into, into uh, sterility. So, um, but Abimelech gets his men together to explain to them the things of the Lord. Then Abimelech called Abraham. So he has his own men on board first, and then he brings in Abraham. What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you? Now what kind of night has Abraham had? What was his sleep like? I don't think he got a dream from the Lord. Abimelech did. I don't think Abraham got any kind of dream or vision or anything. I think he just tossed and turned and didn't sleep probably any at all. Oh, and by the way, all those years ago when she was in Pharaoh's house, did God keep Pharaoh from touching her? That statement's not in there. That statement's not in there. And so I think that part of the discipline, I think, is that they had another 20 years of barrenness. They had another time of, uh, of no children. And uh, they can't, you see, God cannot allow even a hint or a whiff or a, there can be no question about Isaac's paternity. If there's a question about, well, he's Pharaoh's child, not Abraham's child, well, then the whole Abrahamic covenant is gone, out the window, and the salvation plan is over. Okay? So I think because of Pharaoh's harem, it required a decade or more of barrenness for Sarah and Abraham. And the trigger for, um, for uh, the resumption of her menstrual cycle, in other words, the undoing of menopause, um, required a witness, and God very graciously allowed for the household of Abimelech to serve as the witnesses of her purity, of, her, um, of Abraham's paternity, and the details here. But it comes into the point when uh, he says, I was afraid there was no fear of God in this place. And you go, wow. Uh, Abraham in verse 11 said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, they will kill me because of my wife. And so, you know, righteousness exalts a nation. There is fear of God in all kinds of places. In places we don't expect, there will be fear of the Lord in a variety of places. And you know, when we do missionary work and we go places, we don't try to bring our culture. We don't try to turn them into Americans. We, uh, we reach them where they are in their language, in their culture, in their nation. They just need to learn that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. They need to learn to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And then they start to grow in the Word of God and then let, let the Word of God shape their culture after that. So uh, righteousness can exalt a nation, including even Philistines, all right, even Egypt. And here's where uh, in Genesis 41 then, two generations after Abraham, uh, or even three, when Joseph is exalted, 
and becomes uh, the ruler of Egypt. Here's a Pharaoh. I, I'm guessing he gets saved. I'm guessing, I don't know, whether he gets saved or not, he certainly recognizes that Joseph is the savior of his nation and that there's famine on the way and that there's seven years of plenty and then there's going to be followed by seven years of, of famine. And if you're going to survive seven crop failures in a row, if you're going to survive, you know, if you're going to live for seven years based on food production of seven years prior to that, uh, that 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 that's a miracle. That requires a lot of wisdom. That requires God's hand on a blessing. And so Joseph is the person to do this. And in Genesis forty-one fifty through fifty-seven, we see this. Um, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Here's Joseph, and he gets a Gentile bride. He gets a Gentile bride, but he becomes the double portion tribe. And that's interesting. Names the first one Manasseh, where he said, God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. So if uh, you're forgetful, maybe Manasseh will help you remember. Uh, and then the second one he named Ephraim, fruitful. He said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he's not in the promised land. He's in the land of affliction. And yet he's exactly where God wants him to be. And righteousness is it going to exalt that nation. A land of affliction will be exalted because a believer is going to stay faithful. So when seven years of plenty, when seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end and seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands. All, not just Egypt, all the other lands around too, including the Philistines' land of Gerar, including where, where Jacob was with the other tribes. And uh, But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Why is there bread? Because they've been stockpiling it for seven years leading up to this. They've been storing it and, uh, on a scale unbelievable. If you're going to feed a world population, how much do you got to store? They probably thought he was just as big an idiot as they thought Noah was when Noah was building the ark. You know, they've never seen silos that large, barns that large, whole cities given over to food storage and armies posted to defend the food storage. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread and Pharaoh called to the Egyptians, said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. Righteousness exalts a land and God will have his man prepared for that moment you know, I think Winston Churchill was the man prepared for England in World War II. I think uh, George Washington was the man prepared for America in uh, <clears throat> 1776. Joseph, obviously, is the man here prepared for Egypt. So when the famine had spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Righteousness exalts a nation and you want a man of wisdom there, a man that fears the Lord and serves the Lord. You want him in office. Babylon, a couple of other instances here. And there's, there's more on this. Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. We've got hints to this in Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah 25, 9. All right, Jeremiah. Now, Babylon was a wicked nation. Babylon was, was horrible. And uh, God used them. They came in to inflict His wrath. They used Him. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the tool that came in to destroy Jerusalem, to burn the temple down, to plunder everything, to take captives away. But in the process of that, <laughs> some of those captives knew the truth and gave the gospel. And some of the Babylonians start getting saved, including Nebuchadnezzar. And more detail on that comes up in uh, the book of Daniel, right? With the lion's den and the fiery furnace and all the stories that are in the book of Daniel. Um, and, and I think it's pretty clear. I can pinpoint the, the, the moment when Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. But even prior to that, in the prophecies that are given in the book of Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah never goes to Babylon. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem when Jerusalem is destroyed. He's personally rescued. And even word is given from Nebuchadnezzar himself to rescue the prophet Jeremiah and not put him to death. Why did that happen? Because by then he's saved. <laughs> by then he's, he's got this fear and he's learning from Daniel. Anyway. But we have these clues along the way and I think they're, uh, they're, they're curious to me. So uh, Jeremiah 25 and verse 9, um, verse 8 says, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. Notice that? My servant. And I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp. The whole land will be a desolation and a horror and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And so here's the great prophecy of the 70 year captivity, right? But in the context of this, Nebuchadnezzar is called his servant. His Ebed, his servant. And that to me is interesting. So God, God will put his people where he wants them and they may not be the people we expect. <laughs> All right? You may be looking at somebody and thinking, you know, I'm not going to waste my time giving them the gospel. There, there's no way in the world they're ever going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? Not only are they going to get saved, but God's going to use them in a mighty way. He's going to use them in a way that nobody else could be used in such a way. And, uh, you know, all right, maybe their background was less than ideal. <laughs> Crude. Maybe uh, they were, uh, you know, I think about President Donald Trump, right? I mean, goodness. Uh, I was watching Lethal Weapon the other night, and he was, his name was mentioned there. Here's a movie from the 80s. You know, they're talking about, you know, hitting the Donald Trump jackpot when they found all this cash inside a shipping container at the port, at the thing. Um, and you think, wow, they made that movie, they had no clue that this rich guy they're poking fun of is going to be president in 30 years, you know? And I expect, I'm curious now, I want to find out how many times has his name, has his name been mentioned in movies and TV shows and things over the years and no one had a clue. Like, 
It's like watching Bedtime for Bonzo. Who had a clue that Ronald Reagan was going to be president, you know, 30 years after that? They have no idea. Who would have had a clue that Nebuchadnezzar would get saved and be an instrument in the right hand of Jesus Christ? It's interesting to me. So um, that's the prophecy there. It's the prophecy of 70 years. It's the prophecy they could cling to when they were hauled away. Uh, a couple chapters later, uh, well, see, you notice that there's when the 70 years are complete, then uh, I will punish the king of Babylon. And notice it's not Nebuchadnezzar anymore at that point. And that nation declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, I will make it an everlasting desolation. He had a very, very long reign, but it wasn't, you know, I think it was 40 years, 60 years, something. But, and he'd been king prior to the 70 years even starting. And so it's Belshazzar, the writing on the wall guy, is the one that gets uh, destroyed when uh, the 70 years are complete. All right, uh, over to chapter 27. So in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, um, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your necks, and send word to the king of Edom, and to the king of Moab, and the king of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre, and to the king of Sidon, by the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Command them to go to their masters, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth. And so they get these uh, bonds, these, these uh, chains. Uh, these are the uh, visual aids by which they're to go and communicate this message. I have made the earth, the men, and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power, by my outstretched arm. I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Who is it that's pleasing in his sight? It's Nebuchadnezzar. Now I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. Now he's not even saved yet. He'll get saved. He's going to get saved when the youth are brought out of the fiery furnace. All right. I've given all these things to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. I have given him also wild animals of the field to serve him. And all the nations shall serve him and his sons and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. And so the downfall of Babylon came as a part of a multi-nation coalition. The, the uh, Medes and the Persians banded together and the Medo-Persian um, endeavor brought about the fall of Babylon. That was only by the time of his grandson. All right. And it will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. And so what he's saying here is Nebuchadnezzar is my servant, he's my tool, he's coming in, he's going to conquer, conquer, conquer. What you need to do is submit. If you don't submit to Nebuchadnezzar's dominion, you're dead. Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill you. Okay? That's the whole point of this, of this message. And it's 
prophetic. It's typical not only of what happens here with Nebuchadnezzar, but then ultimately it's what happens with Jesus Christ in Armageddon. He's coming to conquer. He's going to conquer this world at His second advent. And you either submit to Jesus Christ to enter into the millennial kingdom or He kills you and sends you to hell. That's what it comes down to. Sheep and goat judgment for Gentiles, wilderness judgment for Israel. No unbeliever will survive Armageddon. Only believers get to populate the millennial kingdom. All right, how about chapter 43? Jeremiah 43 and verse 10. And uh, by now, uh, Jeremiah, Jerusalem has fallen. There's a, a remnant that's fled to Egypt, and they, Jeremiah didn't want to go, but they took him, kidnapped him, made him go. And uh, they come to this place called Toppenes, and he's going to uh, have a message for him here. Take some uh, large stones in your hands and hide them in the mortar in the brick terrace, which is at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace in Toppenes, in the sight of some of the Jews. So hide it there in the mortar and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to send and get Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I'm going to set his throne right over these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his canopy over them. And so you're going to know it's true because after he's here sitting here, you can dig it up and you can find these stones and they're already written and they're already labeled. And uh, there it is. Anyway, righteousness can exalt even the Babylonians when a king like Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. How about Persia? Isaiah 44, 28 and 45, 1. The end of chapter 44 and the first part of chapter 45 of Isaiah. This is even more extraordinary because this now backs up 150 years and it um, goes forward in time. So this is an even earlier prophecy of a later king. This is more impressive than Jeremiah prophesying of Nebuchadnezzar who was an unbeliever of his own generation. Here's Isaiah mentioning uh, Cyrus by name. Isaiah 44, 28. And this is just too accurate and it's the reason why the Bible haters don't believe, they don't believe that a 7th century prophet like Isaiah could have written this uh, so accurately. And so they invent something called Deutero-Isaiah, Trito-Isaiah. They say this was afterwards. This was a Jewish person in the Maccabee time that wrote uh, a forged prophecy afterwards because God prophesied it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. Shepherd's even better than servant, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar was the servant. Cyrus is the shepherd. He will perform all my desire. He declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his Messiah, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand. So more prophecy. God's going to use Cyrus to paint a picture of Jesus Christ, the shepherd Christ, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make rough places smooth. Does this sound familiar? All right. So Persia can be a nation in which righteousness can exalt it. And we see even a wicked king like uh, Xerxes. He can have a queen like Esther and a prime minister like Mordecai. Esther 10, verses 1 through 3. 
So maybe the king isn't a great hero. <laughs> you know, I don't know that Pharaoh got saved, but he had Joseph. Um, I don't know that Xerxes gets saved, but he has Esther and he has Mordecai. I believe Nebuchadnezzar, I can prove Nebuchadnezzar got saved. I can prove that Cyrus got saved. But here in Esther 10, King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media in Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen who had sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. He becomes an intercessor for his whole nation, a people without a nation, okay, until they get their nation back. So there's blessing there. Pray for our president. Pray that he gives him a, uh, counselors, that he gives him advisors, that he gives him a vice president, which I think he does. Vice President Mike Pence is an evangelical born-again believer who's dispensationally squared away. And uh, I think that's marvelous. Even in Tyre, 1 Kings 5, verses 1 through 12, the best thing for righteousness to exalt a nation be a blessing to the Jews. The greatest thing a Gentile nation can do is to be on friendly terms with a Jewish nation. You want to line your nation up for blessing? Bless the Jews. You want to line your nation up for cursing? Curse the Jews. It's as simple as that. Okay? You know, here's geopolitics in a nutshell. The Jews. <laughs> okay? Domestic policy, foreign policy. Domestic policy, make sure you've got freedom of religion so that the Jewish people are not hassled. Jewish people are not, that they're free from pogroms, that they're free from persecution, that they're not going to be burned out of their houses and their synagogues and their places of business and, and all the rest. Give them a land where they can live their lives in freedom. And you will be blessed like no nation's ever been blessed on the face of this earth. That's the history of America. Okay? The history of America. When they were driven out of Brazil, they settled uh, in New Amsterdam. And, and even though De Ruyter was not really a, a big, he was not friendly to Jewish people, but he did give them a refuge in New Amsterdam. Became really known as New York when England conquered it and took it from away from the Netherlands. There have been Jews in, in New York longer than New York's been New York. Okay? Longer than America's been America. This land has been a refuge where Jewish people have been protected. And because they can thrive here, we get blessed. That's domestic policy. Foreign policy, again, don't curse the Jewish nation. Do not curse the Jewish nation. I am so thrilled that next Monday, is it next Monday? Next week, they're going to have the ribbon cutting ceremony and they're going to uh, celebrate the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. Presidents have been promising it for 50 years. And finally a president said, I do what I say I'm going to do. And moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, of course. The eternal capital of the Jewish people. And that's, the, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. If, if our president does nothing else for the rest of his time in office, moving the embassy to Jerusalem is amazing. Just on, in terms of world history. So here is uh, King uh, Hiram. Hiram, king of Tyre, is like Iran, Marine, is named after this guy. 
except Iran's name ends with an N instead of an M. But uh, here's Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always been a friend of David. So Solomon sent word to Hiram saying, you know that David my father was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord uh, because of the wars which surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord spoke to David my father saying, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon and my servants will be with your servants and I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say. Name your price. For I know, for you know, there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. And when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be Yahweh today. Here's a Gentile that's intimate with Yahweh. He knows the name Yahweh. Who has given to David a wise son over this great people. So Hiram sent word to Solomon saying, I've heard the message which you have sent me and I will do what you desire concerning the cedar and cypress timbers. Anyway, there's blessing here and this goes all the way down to verse 12. Um, My servants will bring them down from Lebanon to the sea and I will make them into rafts to go by sea to the place where you direct me. I will have them broken up there and you shall carry them away. Then you shall accomplish my desire by giving food to my household. So Hiram gave Solomon as much as he desired of the cedar and cypress timber. And Solomon then gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of beaten oil. Thus Solomon would give Hiram year by year. And so when you bless the Jews, God blesses you. The Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a covenant. Okay? Two of them made a covenant. So do I have a problem with any uh, blessings the United States of America provides to Benjamin Netanyahu and the nation of Israel? None whatsoever. What, you know, we want to sell arms, we want to sell weapons, we want to provide assistance? Absolutely. Can we give more? <laughs> right? Are we giving enough? What more do you need? And what more are they providing us? What blessings does Israel provide us? What medical advancements, what technological advancements, what amazing wealth has Israel produced for the world far outstrips their population. Tiny little percentage of the human population and a monster percentage of the Nobel Peace Prizes and and world accomplishments. It's just, it's staggering. Okay? What about the aid we give to the Palestinians, so-called Palestinians? It's a fictional people. What about the aid we give to the Arab Bedouins that call themselves Palestinians? Well, is there a covenant promise for their blessing? They're they're dedicated to the destruction of Jerusalem. Their charter calls for the destruction of Jerusalem to drive every last Jew into the sea. Why are we in partnership with Hamas? Why are we in partnership with Hezbollah? Okay, With uh, Fatah, I meant to say, not Hezbollah, Fatah. Fatah and Hamas are dedicated to the destruction of Jerusalem. We want no partnership with that. So domestic policy is simple, foreign policy is simple, right? I should be president. I don't have time for that. And then, honestly, God put the man there that he wants there. Right here, right now. 
And as much as, as he's hated, the more they hate him, the more I know that God is just awesome. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Anyway. And sure, whatever's in his past, and whatever's in his past, and whatever. He was godless, he was immoral, he was crude, he got into the kind of stuff that playboy billionaires get into. Okay? What's God doing with him today? And thank God for that. All right, so that we have the aspect there. We will pick up next week in chapter 15. And like I say, uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Boy, if we can learn that, that's, uh, that's a great way to start a chapter. And uh, take it from there. All right, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for uh, all of your grace, all of your mercy, all of your... Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing to think about, Father. For a week now, I've been rather... Uh, sentimental and, and, and nostalgic thinking back to 28 years ago and, and Father you are just so amazing in all that you do beyond anything we could ask or think never would have dreamed in a million years that your plan was what your plan was so thank you for, for uh, following your plan and not ours, thank you for glorifying your son, thank you for building up your children in the truth of the word of God, I thank you Father and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name Amen